Well, my plan is that uh, today we'll conclude our kind of on and off study of James and um, move into a little bit of a reflection on the temptations of Jesus in the book of Luke. And then we will be to Advent, believe it or not. Advent comes a little early this uh, feels feels early, I think, because of uh, the way Christmas falls uh, this year. But uh, anyway, I'm looking forward to what God has for us today and in the weeks to come as we uh, hurdle towards the end of the year. So this picture does a pretty good job of demonstrating what a trust fall is. <laughs> Maybe you have participated in one. Maybe you have been the one catching. <laughs> Jonah's familiar with these. He likes to come up in front of me and just do it at random times, don't you? I should have warned him that this was going to be part of the sermon. He finds this picture hilarious for some reason. But anyway, the idea is you stand on the floor or more often on some sort of a platform or a chair or something and put your hands behind or in front of you and lean back, trusting that the people tasked with catching you are A, able and B, willing to do just that. It's, it's an uncomfortable sensation, though, as we have instinctually this awareness that we should be upright, or if we are falling, that we have to protect our head. It's risky. What if? What if the folks tasked with catching you are either unable or unwilling? You may be thinking, well, thank you, Pastor, for this fascinating bit of information about what constitutes a trust fall, but what in the world does this have to do with James? Specifically, James 4, the end of that chapter, and the beginning of chapter 5. I've come to appreciate, and hopefully you've been able to glimpse a little bit, the way James is able to weave various thoughts together to accomplish something larger. James would, would, uh, would fully support the idea of a thesis statement. Hmm. Remember this in, in, in English or in, uh, in writing, that you, you, you offer your thesis statement and then you give various uh, bits of support. James writes in kind of that way. But sometimes, sometimes, as opposed to outright uh, uh, stating the thesis statement, sometimes the thesis statement is almost hidden within the points that he is making. So sometimes it can be uh, difficult to grasp the larger idea, and I think that that is true in the texts that we'll consider today. In fact, that I, I will suggest to you, and I think you'll see within the scriptures we read that the big idea in this uh, specific portion of James is the importance to those who claim to follow the Lord Jesus to avoid 
the sin of arrogance. To avoid the sin of arrogance. He begins in, or will will begin at least in chapter 4. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into... Oh, hold on. This isn't what I want yet. There we go. Beginning in verse 11. Verse 11 of chapter 4. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who who are you to judge your neighbor? So as we would expect from James, and even a slight familiarity with his book, his introduction of thoughts on arrogance is a return to focus on the words that we speak. He begins, brothers. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers or sisters. He's reminding them of the relationship that he and the members of that church have with each other. Remember, he is writing to a specific congregation, or more likely a group of congregations. And a common emphasis of James is the importance of our words. Several weeks ago, we spent most of the sermon reminding each other that more than just avoiding avoiding negative speech, we are called to allow our words to bring life and hope. And now James addresses those negative words, though, and some translations even use the word slander. Those who speak evil against a brother or sister, slander. Slander, by its very nature, involves a secret inward that is getting out by the words that we say, judgmental attitude. And so it involves arrogance as it lowers one's neighbor in an effort to elevate one's self. We've talked about that with our kids, maybe. Well, uh, you know, folk maybe say something about you because they're trying to make themselves, they're trying to make themselves feel better about themselves. It's a strange way of attempting to raise yourself, but it is something that we are all guilty of from time to time. And James offers an excellent warning for us. In our 21st century society, whether it is a private email, as the coach of a football team discovered this week, private email sent years ago, resulted in him resigning from, well, a series of emails, in fairness, resulting in him resigning from his job because of the way that he was referring to other people or groups of people. Probably even this millionaire, if not billionaire of a coach, did that, at least in part, to make himself feel better about himself, about the choices he made or the way he looked. 
And James warns readers that engaging in that sort of speech, be it verbal or written for our purposes, is arrogance to the highest degree. Because, because as he notes, it puts us in the place of the lawgiver. It puts us in the position of determining how people rank. James says that for followers of Jesus, that cannot be a part of our life. And then in chapter or verse 13 of chapter 4, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is life? Or what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So he maintains his focus on the issues of the risk of becoming arrogant by mentioning the uncertainty of life. He's not saying that careful and thoughtful planning is arrogant or sinful in any way. He's warning readers that the only one who can plan with certainty is God. And that the uncertainty of life is a factor in most every major and sometimes minor decisions that we make. We can plan for and anticipate certain outcomes, but because of the fragility of life, nothing is certain. This is the week at our house where 40% of the birthdays in our family occur. Today is actually Dana's birthday, and Thursday is Elijah's birthday. I can always kind of track how long I've been around here by looking at Elijah and subtracting six months. <laughs> he was just six months when we carried him in and his little carrier, and he'll be 12 this week. I was talking with Dana some about all that has occurred even in our own family in the last 12 months since her last birthday. There have been things that we anticipated and, and kind of knew were coming. There have been other things that came as a complete surprise in the way God leads us. And no doubt that's been true of you and your family too. A humble awareness of this. This idea that we are on a journey within our own lives that we know the outcome of, we know our ultimate destination, but in terms of the various turns along the way, we don't. And so that humility hopefully allows us to keep a, a broad perspective. I was looking at some notes that I had kept from around the time that my paternal grandfather passed away. One of the things that I had noted was 
that just hours before he passed away one Tuesday in Wichita in May of 2015. Many family members and friends had been in and out of his room that day, knowing that the end was coming. At that point, he had become somewhat confused about where he was and who was who and who was coming in and out, so on. My Aunt Linda, who was there for the great majority of his lengthy hospital stay, said that one of the last things that he said, as he turned to her, kind of referenced the various folk in and out, was, do these folks know Jesus? Do these folks know Jesus? One of the favorite, there were two things that he always used to, Say and my my dad has mentioned this. I don't know in how many in how many sermons. I'm probably me too. He he would always say that pastors and it's probably true of others too. Pastors should be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. I don't know where he picked that up, but he 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 uh, he would often say that. And then he would pass on something that he heard from his father who died. When he was a relatively young man, both my papa and my great-grandfather were relatively young, when Tom Clark, my great-grandfather, died, he said to my grandfather, I think, if memory serves, not too long before he died, Ernest, if you ever get a chance to put in a good word for the Lord, that's what he called it, to put in a good word for the Lord. Don't pass it on. The awareness that we don't know when that last chance will be to put in the good word. That we don't know when the end of our life will come. When, as James describes it, the, the, the mist, the mist that just kind of, without us noticing, and you see that a lot during this time of year, you know, when it's, chilly in the morning and and uh we're i'm taking the boys to school and we drive across or past this field and there's mist there and then by the time i come home it's it's evaporated it's, it's gone james says our lives are kind of that way so it's with humility that we approach each day that we have with a humble urgency about the work of the kingdom Come now, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and, you will, and, they, uh, and against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. So James turns his attention to those for whom arrogance has resulted in abuse of others, to those who are rich 
and have utilized that in a way that harms other people. He wants them to know that their actions are being noted, and he, visit, he vividly warns that the riches and expensive clothing, clothing that they are hoarding testify against them as it speaks to arrogance. You know, we don't often consider the dangers of arrogance. Certain sinful practices and attributes get quite a bit of attention, but maybe arrogance, maybe within pride, but arrogance specifically, I think, is sometimes overlooked. I think arrogance at its core, though, is a perversion of trust. It's, a, it's refusing to lean back into the arms of a God who will never fail us. Arrogance is trust, but it's trust in an unworthy God. Arrogance is trust in our ability to raise ourselves above others by speaking so negatively about them that others perceive them as lower than us. Arrogance is trust in our own ability to be certain about the future, something that's an impossibility. Arrogance is misplaced trust in our ability to obtain financial security. These attitudes or practices have as their foundation the sin of arrogance. So this day, as we conclude our work through James, may we open our hearts to the searching of the Spirit, allowing each corner and crevice of our heart to be inspected and transformed into humble trust.